Hi, I'm Randy the Recovering Addict, and this is Recovery Radio. Today we have a special guest with us, Marvin Charles. Dad's the founder, I believe, correct? Yes, I am. Divine Alternative to Dad's Services. Marvin has uh, agreed to join us and talk about his journey through all this, where he came from, what he's been through, and what he is doing today to give back and help the community. Sir, Randy, first of all, let me say thank you for showing some interest in and the work that we've been able to do. And you're right, you are a participant in one of our classes. So I'll give you kind of an idea of how we got here, how my passion kind of blew up into something that I wanted to reach back and share with community. I was born in 1955. Later on, I found out that my mother was 14 years old when she had me, and my father was 20 years old. But I want to put a pin in it for that, for now. I Grew up in the central district of Seattle, Washington. I remember going to school, which was like four blocks from my house. My sister and I was walking to school, coming home for lunch. I always described that point in my life was like leave it to Beaver. See, I was much older by the time the Huxtables came around. It was the program that modeled family was the leave it to Beaver show. And that's what our life was like, my little sister and I. 1965, my mother passed away. They buried her on my 10th birthday. But what happened was I was then exposed to something that I had not been exposed to. And that was simply that the lady who I thought was my mother was not my mother. She was my adopted mother. And that my father, who I adored and thought was my father, was not my father. He was my adopted father. My sister and I was to go live with his sister and her husband, which was my aunt and uncle. Now, to give you a brief description of how this my aunt and uncle were, they were the relatives that you had to dress up to go over where their house was, and you, you never wanted to go. But now I'm living with these folks. And my uncle right away discouraged my sister and I by uh, dressing me in a Catholic uniform and sending me to public school. I was in the fifth grade wearing a salt and pepper pants, a blue sweater, and a white shirt. And my sister wore the plaid skirt and the blue sweater. And so we both were dressed up like Catholic kids and sent to a public school. And then on top of that, that was the first year of busing. And so we were part of a busing program that sent us outside of the central district to the north end schools. That was devastating for me. I spent six years underneath that prison regime. I say that because it was just like it. I went to school, came home from school, brought all my books home from school, my sister and I. We went into this beautiful home that had a fence around it. And once we closed that fence, it was just just miserable. And I'll give you an example of that. My first punishment, I think I was about 11 years old. My sister and I were playing. I broke the window in my room. So my uncle sent me out the house across the street to an empty lot. And he asked me to to bring back a brick. Then he made me unfold a piece of newspaper and laid a brick in it, crushed the brick up, and then had me go get two more rocks where he had me kneel in the bricks and hold these two rocks over my head. And if I lowered my elbows below my shoulder, he would hit me with this strap. There was another punishment where he turned the stove on and had me stand in front of the stove and held my hand over the stove. And he said, this will teach you not to steal. He boiled hot boiled eggs, 
and threatened to put them in my mouth and said, that, that'll teach you not to lie. I went from leaving to Beaver to this almost prison setting like. So I, I lived under that regime until I was 17 years old when I ran away. And I had always went to school and talked to my counselor about all the stuff that I was going through. And at that time, there was no such thing as CPS. There was no such thing as child protection services. It just, it wasn't. My counselor at school told me, if you run away, don't just run away. You need to run to the youth center because if you run away, the police will just pick you up and bring you right back home. And so I never forgot about that. And second semester in the 11th grade, I came home because I lost my house key to get in the house. And I begged my sister to leave hers underneath the thing so they would know that I lost my keys. And my uncle came home, stepped on the mat, saw the key under the mat and was waiting for me when I got home and told me, I want you to go across the street and get a brick. And so when I went across the street, I kept going. I ran all the way to the youth center and told them what was going on in my house. So they called my uncle and told him, you don't have to worry about him. He's here with us. Two days later, they had a court hearing. They asked my uncle and my aunt to come down. They set me in the middle of them. And the judge, I remember him like it was yesterday. The judge said, did you do all these things that this kid said you did? And my uncle said to them, your honor, I believe if he lives in my household, that he must abide by my rules. And the judge slammed a mallet down and said, I'd make this kid a ward of the courts. What I thought was instant freedom was not instant freedom. But I didn't find that out until 22 years later. And here's what I mean by that. So as a kid that was made a legal adult, emancipated, I then had freedom, but I didn't know what to do with freedom. I wasn't prepared to be that, but I thought I was. And so I started hanging out with all the wrong people. I started doing all the wrong things. I went to a movie with a friend and saw the movie Superfly. I saw that movie and for the first time in my life, I thought I knew what I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And I emulated that lifestyle, that mindset for the next 20 years. Care to elaborate what kind of life that was you were uh, idolizing? Yes, Superfly was a movie that came through the community in the early 70s that portrayed the lifestyle of a dope dealer, of a pimp, at that time being a young kid, of a hero. At that time in the country, poverty was widespread in the urban centers across this country. And the guys who had the big cars and all the women were those guys. Me being a kid who grew up without the fancy whatever, I had a desire to want to, why can't I do that? Why can't I be like that? And so I followed those footsteps. I wound up in California and Florida and New York, all over this country. Before I knew it, I looked up and I had children by five different women. I had lived all over the country. I left Seattle in 1974 and here it was 1994 and I'm coming back. I have a five-year-old son in the backseat of my Cadillac and I'm addicted to drugs, and I don't really know what to do. Well, how old were you when you jumped in feet first when it came to doing drugs? 18. Yeah. It became a lifestyle every day, all day. Well, you know, it's funny because it did, but it was fun. I was in Hollywood. I was in New York. I was in places where it seemed to be fashionable. And when I was doing these things, 
nobody would have told me that I was going to get hooked, that I was going to be a person who was going to sell all my stuff to be able to get, I just, that never crossed my mind. And I don't think it ever crossed anybody's mind when you an addicted, you enjoy what you're doing and you psych yourself up to believe that this is fun until you start seeing it destructively tear you apart and tear you down. Yeah. At some point in your life, it takes a, a turn that you don't seem to recognize. Do you mind if I ask you to be a little transparent about some of this? Is that okay? Perfect. How about some details of the person and the characters that you had to become in order to live that lifestyle? Some of the things that maybe you've done to people. Um, yes. So I want to zero this conversation particularly on a set of people that I've done this to. And that set of people were my children. My habit became so bad that I started having children and neglecting them. And how do I know that? Is because I looked up one day and I said four of my children were taken by the CPS, Child Protective Services, which means my children were in foster care. Well, duh, I grew up in the foster care system myself. And here's what I did. And I recreated the same thing in my children's life. There was something wrong with that picture. It was really wrong with that picture. I don't need to focus that on any other people who I did something wrong to. I just look in my own family, in my own household. And that's what I was doing. My girlfriend and I were having babies and getting high. We had a crack den, not a house, a crack den where people would show up every day. Babies would be crying in the back room. I remember when my seventh child was born. It was, she was born right in the midst of a crack den. My girlfriend and I were smoking. She was nine months pregnant. And then her water broke. I didn't know that's what had happened. We were sitting on the floor. I saw some water on the floor. And, and I said, what's that? She said, I don't know. Well, in fact, it was her water broke and the baby was on the way. So I called the ambulance, drugs on the table and stuff, and got up, panicked a little bit, tried to clear the house out. So when the ambulance came in, they came in. Now, mind you, I've already had three other children under these same circumstances. And so they took the mother and she had the baby when she got to the hospital. The thing that happened was that they took her to a different hospital. Had they took her to the same hospital as the other kids, they would have snatched the baby right then. But because she went to a different hospital, they gave her the baby and she came home two days later. So now for the next seven months, I'm changing diapers, preparing formula and getting high all at the same time in the midst of all of this. One day, uh, a guy came in the house and said, can I see your old lady? I I'm here to see your old lady. And I remember getting mad because she wasn't going to deny it. I got mad and I cussed her. I cussed everybody else in the house. And I grabbed the seven-month-old child of mine and two cans of formula and four Pampers. And I had hustled up on 50 bucks that night. And that's all I had in my pocket. I didn't know where to go or what to do. But in my mind, I was so desperate. I said to myself, I'm going to leave this baby on the steps of the hospital because anybody would be a better parent than what I was showing right then and there. And so I headed for the hospital to leave the baby on the steps because this madness wasn't changing. I'd been there for two and a half, three years doing the same thing, baby after baby and the same stuff is happening. I wanted to desperately change it. I just didn't know how to. Well, I thought this was a way to do it. However, 
situations and circumstances have a funny way of catching up with you. I got to the hospital and I got ready to leave the baby on the steps. And I sat on this park bench and I started to cry because I was feeding this baby and changing her diapers. I didn't realize that there was a bond growing between her and I. I didn't understand that why I was called to do this, why I felt I was drawn to do this, that when I got ready to leave that baby down, I couldn't do it. Right around the corner was a woman's shelter. And so I went into that woman's shelter and said, is there anybody that could help me? I'm 40 plus years old. I have a seven month old baby. and I don't know what to do. And I don't want to take her back to this crack den that I've been raising her in. And the people looked at me and said, hey, there's nothing we can do. We don't have anything that you can do. Your best bet is to take her to the CPS office, the Child Protection Agency. That was my option. But if you recall, I said I was desperate and I was dearly desperate to do something. Now, I don't think I really understood that something that I was talking about being desperate of doing was changing my life. I don't know if I had signed off on that. I wanted to make sure she was good. I got to the CPS office. It was the hardest thing I ever had to do. And here's why. The CPS already had three other kids of mine and here I show up with another one. Now they had been coming to my house months on top of months and knocking on the door, asking me if I was ready to comply with their orders. And I hadn't been, I wasn't. But now I'm in a position to where I don't wanna do this anymore. I don't wanna live like this anymore. And so whatever you were asking me to do, I'm more than willing to do it. However, they didn't have that kind of confidence in me. I didn't show them any kind of sign that I was willing to change this mindset and this lifestyle and this behavior that I had done. I had been completely non-compliant, disrespectful. So that question you asked me, this was the epitome of it. I was being disrespectful. I was being everything. And now I got to change that. I just didn't realize how hard that job was. That was a very tedious job. My kids didn't ask to be a part of that. They didn't have a decision in that. That was my decision and it was an irresponsible decision. The lady at the CPS office called me back and asked me what did I want to do? And I just explained to her, I don't know what I want to do, but I know I don't want to keep doing what I'm doing. And so she said, well, first we need to have the mother sign off. I said, that ain't going to be a problem. So we put the baby in the backseat of her car and we drove back to that crack den where I was at. And the mother of my children let me in. And when we got inside, I said, listen, we're going to give this child up and you got to sign on it. And this was total shock to her. She was literally sitting on the floor indulging when we came in. She signed the paperwork and I asked her, do you want to go and say goodbye to the baby? And she looked at me with those weird eyes like, no, no, I don't. So I walked out with the caseworker, CPS worker, and the, my daughter put her in her car seat, kissed my daughter and told her daddy's going to get it right. And then watched the car drive off. And then I headed back into the apartment but she wouldn't let me in. Right then and there, I became homeless. Would you agree that that was your rock bottom? Yes, no question. That was no the question. turning point of your life? No question. When it comes to addiction, it's not just giving up the drugs. It's, it's giving up the lifestyle, the person you had to become. It's, I mean, the real battle begins to transform and turn around your entire life, your entire you, right? Yes, you're exactly right. However, it's a process 
it's a process. I don't, I don't want to answer that. Like it's like the clicking a light switch. No, I agree with you. It's not a light switch. It's a, it's like trying to turn around an entire car in a one lane road with your bare hands. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's a unique description, but that's exactly what it feels like. I didn't know that. And not to leave out the fact that now I'm immersed in fear. Right. I'm immersed in fear. I don't know anything but this fear, fear of the unknown. What am I going to do with my life? And I was battling this. I have no college education. I have no job skill. I don't have anything. So I'm thinking I got a backpack full of rocks on my back and I've been carrying it and now I don't know what to do. I don't even know how to take it off. What made it somewhat easy for me is that the CPS worker gave me a list of things that I needed to do. And for the first time in my life, I was willing to do them. At least it was some kind of direction. To be honest with you, the direction is what I thought was to get my children back. I didn't see all the tentacles that were connected to getting my children back. So the first thing was check myself into treatment. This was December 22nd when I gave my child up. I didn't get into treatment until April 16th, which is my clean date now. So I went into treatment, scared to death. There's 200 people on this campus. And the first thing they tell me, only five of you will make it. Wow. That added another boulder to my backpack. I want to make sure I'm one of these five that make it, but who's to say? There's 200 people on this campus. But I got into the recovery. I learned as much as I could. But it seemed as though that in the midst of my recovery, there were a whole lot of battles that I was having that nobody could tell me about. Nobody could answer. I mean, I was just about 45 days in and all hell was breaking loose. How do I deal with this? My counselor couldn't really tell me. I was doing everything they were telling me, but I just felt like I needed something more. And so there was this pastor who used to come in to the treatment center. I fought off going to church. And then this one particular Sunday, I went, opened the door and just sat in. And I saw these people, it was towards the end of the sermon. I saw these people and I didn't know what it was at that time. It was an altar call. But what I did know was whatever they were doing is what I needed. I needed to do what that was. And it was just confession and where they were with their life and where they wanted to be. So the next Sunday I came to church, I sat up front and I waited for that opportunity. I can't tell you what the sermon was. I can't tell you what everybody was, but I knew that I wanted to have that experience that I seen people confessing. And, and so I did that. Pastor asked me, do you want to have a personal relationship with this person, Jesus Christ? And I said, anything is better than what I've been doing. Yes. I began that journey. A couple of weeks later, he took me to SeaTac uh, and baptized me in this lake. And I didn't know if that was really a difference, going to make a difference, but I was so open for anything to make sure anything would be better than what I had just been through. Right. After that, I got baptized and the girl was sitting next to me. It was seven of us who got baptized and we were looking out into the water and this bald eagle flew over the water and opened its talents, didn't touch the water, but opened its talents and then flew away. And we all saw this and a young lady sitting next to me said, did you see that? She said, he just took all that sin out of the water. I resonated with that because I know my life had been full of a bunch of crazy, stupid things that I just 
did over and over and, and thought it was right. But at this moment of clarity in my life, being 45 days clean, which was the longest time I had ever been clean, except for when I was incarcerated. And that doesn't count because when you're incarcerated, all you want to do is the first chance you get is run back to what you you know, right? Yeah, I've been there. I was 45 days clean. I started seeing the side of me that I had never seen before. And if this was going to cost me to get closer to my children or to be able to fight this battle. And one of the things that became very prevalent to me, and that was taking life a day at a time. I didn't know how to do that. Right. I didn't have any experience in doing that. But here was a chance for me to learn how to do that. I did. I uh, got let out of treatment and began the journey of finding me housing and then approaching the courts on the journey of reuniting my family. It was a little difficult at first because I was still in love with the mother of my children, but she was still actively using. And they were telling me that was a no-no. It was a no-no. You need to focus on you. That was the hardest job, the hardest thing to do. I wasn't used to focusing on myself. But they would bring my daughter to the treatment center. I would spend time with her. I began to learn how I could focus on myself. I began to learn that I needed to create a safe place for my children. And so I had to defocus on her and focus on the children. That was really tough. I'd show up at court and they would uh, tell me that I wasn't fit. And I had to go through all of that battle. And and I remember arguing with them. And what do you mean? I just want a chance to take care of I had to go through the whole nine yards. And so about the time they got ready to let me out of treatment and get me my place, the mother of my youngest four children went into treatment, which was a shock. She went into treatment. I saw some hope. I saw some hope. And maybe we could do this. And so we had to show up at court. She had been in treatment about 30 days. We had to go before the courts. And our caseworker came to us and said, you know, this, uh, this is not going to work for her or you. You might as well just sign the paperwork. And the reason she was saying that, she said, because this is her fifth rodeo. This is her fifth time going to treatment. And because you're a man, you're opportunity. Now, this is 1998. They weren't used to men stepping to the plate. The one thing that I noticed, too, is that you're trying to get your life together. You're trying to come to terms with who you are and who you're trying to be and what you've done and dealing with that. And then you have people telling you that you're not good enough. It ain't going to work. You're trying to not bash yourself down. But then you have people you're trying to prove to bashing you down also. That sounds really tough. It's crazy. But I was frustrated. I knew I was working with a system that really felt that way and had a history of feeling that way. Right. And here it is. I don't have a history of trying to do the right thing. Most men get caught up. And I know that from my own experience is because you're in a courtroom. People are telling you, you ain't capable. You're not able to do it. And you're listening to that. And you're being frustrated by that, which then means what? you are now exhibiting behavior that proves everything they think about you. And what I had to learn in that process, there was this lady one day I stormed out of the courtroom because they were telling me your kids are not coming home. And, and I just got angry and stormed out of the courtroom. And then this little lady followed me out of the courtroom and she asked me, can I talk to you a minute? And I was like, angry, yeah, well, what do you want? And she said, Marvin, don't blow it now. 
She said, people have been watching your progress and you need to make sure that you don't react to everything that's going on in the courtroom. Pay attention to the judge. He's watching you. And nobody had ever took that kind of time to tell me anything of that nature. And I grabbed a hold of that thing. I quit listening to what was going on in the courtroom. I started saying, okay, well, if you think that way about me, let me show you how I really am. And let me begin to build who I really am. Learning so to I, respond instead of react. Exactly, exactly. See, what I've come to call myself now, my wife and myself, well, we are systems navigators. And that's the system. And we all have to learn how to navigate systems. Well, how do you navigate systems? Well, what works for you will usually work for the next people coming behind you or walking alongside of you. But if we don't look at it like that, navigating systems, we'll get caught up and chewed up and spit out by the system. And those were things that were coming very clear to me. So the first thing, my caseworker said that you guys don't have a chance. And then she said, if you guys were married, you might. But she wasn't saying that to encourage us. But I remember as soon as she got off in the distance and couldn't see me anymore, I asked Jeanette, would she marry me? And I told her I would do everything in my power to make her the happiest woman in the world, which I, I didn't grow up in family. I didn't grow up in anything, but I wanted to be a family for these children who didn't ask to not have a family. We are putting pieces together with scraps and tin and tape and all those things. But I looked at it like this. I made sure I did whatever I had to do to keep drugs in my system. Well, why don't I use that same energy to keep a family together? And that's how I thought about it. That's how I began to walk myself out of this and into this lifestyle that I live today. Jeanette and I got married. We looked for a place, a nice little rental that would bring our kids home. I got to tell you, as soon as we told the courts that we had a little place, they snatched our visits from us. Well, we didn't give you permission to go get you a place so that you could bring your, I mean, just all kinds of stuff. But we didn't let that stop us. We didn't let that. They took our visit from us. We went and got our attorney and told him, listen, we have jobs today. We're responsible. We're trying to do the right thing. So they convinced the courts. Let's give them an opportunity. I remember the day that my wife went to go pick our kids up for their first visit home. It was a remarkable thing. It was hope that we really could do this. We looked at the journey that was before us. We looked at where we had traveled from prior to that. And guess what? There was a reason to be encouraged. There was a reason to say we could do this. Let's continue to give everything we can to bring our children home so we can raise them and not the system raise. The system that so tested your recovery and your endurance and your strength and perseverance, you guys stuck together and pulled through. Yes. We thought that wasn't enough, though. Yeah. And here's why we thought that wasn't enough. Because we know that we, there were people we got high with, we did time with, we did crime with to stay high. We felt we're in the same position that we were. There were some people who said, enough's enough. What do we do to put our family together? And we literally went looking for those people. That was a part of our recovery. That was a part of what helped us stay clean. We started finding people and we started being cheerleaders for people. We started finding out ways that we could take and guide and help people. We started doing a parenting class. And it was a parenting class done by an agency 
And the agency would literally allow my wife and I to be spokesperson for them. It was a parenting class called the Effective Parenting Class. We had graduated out of class, but they would always ask us to come back and share our experiences and do that. And, and we kind of liked that. We kind of seen how that was empowering other parents, but we were up underneath this system. So we sat out and talked about how could we start a program that would really cater specifically to formerly for addicts, for people who were in recovery. I mean, we had AA, true enough, but AA wasn't helping us help people who had children who were addicted to drugs. And we really tried to focus on that. 22 years later, that's how dads came into existence. Tell us a little more about dads. We established dads in 2000. And we just, we first started out working with child support. A lot of times what people didn't know and people weren't really giving us the information was that when your children are in custody of the CPS, but when your children are in foster care, the state pays the foster family a fee for taking care of those children. Well, then in turn, child support then gives you a debt for the state paying for your children in foster care. And that debt usually is attributed to the custodial parent. So literally, my wife, Jeanette, had a child support order. And how we knew, I found a job. We had made a conscious decision that you're going to have to stay home with the kids because there's four of them. I'll keep the job and pay. So we, we kind of consciously put that together. Well, then about six months later, I go to the bank and they garnish my wages. They take my money out the bank and garnish my wages. So that meant that our family had no means of support, no viable means to feed my children or anything. And so Jeanette got on the phone with her caseworker and said that the debt had accumulated to $17,000 and that she was gonna have to pay it. And she explained to them, listen, that's not my money. That's my husband's money. If this is the debt that I owe, then take money from me. And But in this case, you've taken his money, which provides for our house. So I don't know how she did it, but she got him to reverse the charges. When the income tax came around, I was more than willing to let the income tax go to cover hers and mine to cover the debt. And when we did that for a few years, the debt went away. Now, what was important about that is that how many people know that when your children are in custody of the CPS, that there's a debt accumulated by child support? Very few people know that. That was one of the things we wanted to utilize to be able to share with people to know that, hey, here's what you do. Here's what you need to do. Here's what's taking place. Those were things that we wanted to inform people in our community. Why? Because my children growing up in low-income communities, there are other children growing up in low-income communities. And one day, one of those children are going to marry another child in that community. So how do we inform the parents who are raising their children, just like we want to be informed? And what do we do to make sure that we nip that in the bud, those low-income mindsets? And we felt like this was one way to do it. Dads could be an information piece that would help inform those folks who had families who were displaced by 
CPS, by child support, about a number of those assets that we believe were supposed to be helping families, but really weren't. It sounds like a lot of what you've been through, you've taken a lot of the work that you put into it and you're trying to help fathers not have to go through it as hard and children to be able to put it back together and to start a life for those that are willing. Yes, yes, exactly. I add another little piece because a lot of times, so where does my wife fit in? How does a mother fit in that? Well, the unique quality that my wife brings to dads is the fact that her father in the 60s raised her by himself. Jeanette's mother had four of the children and Jeanette being the youngest was not getting the attention she should have gotten. And so they were living in Los Angeles and the father went by her house, her mother's house to tell her goodbye. She was being watched by her other siblings. And he said he went to pick her up. Her diaper fell off and her bottom was raw. He said, tell your mother that I got the baby. She was four months old. They stayed in Los Angeles for a couple of years where he took the baby and watched over for her. And then he wanted to leave and go to his hometown, which was Cleveland, Ohio. But he stopped in Seattle, Washington. And it was right for him being able to get housing for him and his daughter and be able to put, put her in school in early 70s. They got a, a residence in the projects in the Rainer Valley, the Rainer Vista. That's where he raised her from the time she was four months old until he passed away when she was 27. My wife was an asset. Why was she an asset? Because her father raised her. And I just determined this a few years ago that I got the benefits for whatever her father put in her becoming my wife. I got the benefits. I got a chance to see what he did, which encouraged me to be able, because mind you, I didn't have any of that. But it encouraged me to be able to say, well, I can put this in my daughters and in my sons. That has been the last 22 years. I have eight children, four boys and four girls. My children have not been in jail. They've not been on drugs. I have three grandchildren now. That journey does pay for itself. I'm just elated today that I made that decision to take my daughter to the hospital uh, by the way, that daughter that I took to the hospital that day to leave her, 18 years later, I was able to drive her to college and leave her there for four years. And that's been a sure blessing. That's Marvette is her name. She's after, named after her mother and her father, Marvin and Jeanette. Can I ask you a question for our listeners, probably use some advice or somebody that knows somebody that's using, what advice would you give? It's funny, but if you truly truly, truly want to live life, there's way more to life than it is the life that you have when you're using. If you desire to really live life, quit using, quit using, find some help and take that help as it is like a last chance for you to do the right thing. I'm telling you, man, I am so thankful, so thankful that I went into recovery that I chose the life that I, that's what it was. It was a choice. I could have stayed using. I hear people say this, and I don't mean to put it down, but I hear people say, if I take another drink or if I take a, use some more drugs or whatever, that I'm going to die. Well, I got to be honest with you. I, I've never said that, nor do I feel that way. Here's what I don't want to do. I don't ever, 
ever in my life want to live like I was living when I was under the influence. That's what I don't want to do anymore. I don't ever want to do that again. That was miserable. But it took me to be clean to find out how miserable I was living. Thank you for joining us today. I appreciate it. Marvin Charles, the founder of Dads, Divine Alternative to Dad Services. So if someone was interested in seeing what Dad was about and what it could do for their life, how would they go about finding you or looking it up? We have a website, which is aboutdads.org. And you have, a, especially because of COVID, you could reach out to us through the website. We will reach back at you. We have a phone number, which is 206-722-3137. You can reach us via phone call. We have people answering the phone or leave a message. Somebody will connect with you. We actually have two sites, one in Seattle, and then we have a location in Tacoma. But again, go to our website and you'll get the address for and contact information on our website. Marvin Charles, I'd like to thank you today for joining us on Recovery Radio and telling your story and testimony and everything that you've been through to get where you're at. And it's just amazing what you're doing for the community and dads and children. And like I said, I'm a part of it and reaching out to you guys. It's never been an issue. You guys have been there and really reached back. And I, I, I just feel that you're out there to do this to give back. And that, that's amazing. Randy, I, I tell you, I'm, I'm really proud of you, bro. You have struck me as a person who desires to live in clean and sober lifestyle. You've jumped in with your children. And I'm just honored to be partnered with you in this. Trust me, your kids, your children will benefit. Not only will your children, but the people who listen to you, podcast, they will, they will benefit as well. And I just, I appreciate you so much, bro. Thank you. And remember, you are better than nobody, but there is nobody better than you.